0: There are times in your life when you have lived through something historic and you were old enough to remember it. Certainly, as I narrate this episode to you in August of 2021, the COVID pandemic is up there as one of those events that is a truly historic milestone in human history. The collapse of the Soviet Union was another. It was a geopolitical thunderbolt. I was personally around not in Russia, but in England, on TV, watching events unfold before my very eyes. One moment, there was the USSR, and the next, there wasn't. It was a sudden, abrupt, and oddly bloodless end, with a whimper. Internally convulsed collapse no matter how much credit foreign powers may take for forcing its demise to the inefficiencies of, say, communism or authoritarianism, authoritarianism, what actually won in 1991 when the USSR collapsed was not capitalism or democracy per se, but nationalism. There are so many moving parts and so many complex factors that intertwined and worked all together, that I would like to break it down into 10 steps. 1. Economic stagflation. 2. Mikhail Gorbachev. 3. Glasnost and Perestroika. 4. Chernobyl disaster. 5. Alcoholism. 6. The Afghan war. 7. Multi-candidate politics. 8. The Cold War. 9. The August coup. And 10. Post-Soviet World Let's start with economic stagflation. Historians, scholars and specialists are uncertain what caused this stagflation, with some arguing that the command economy suffered from flaws that were just inherited in part of its growth or technical growth. Others argue that there's a lack of reform or the high expenditures on the military that led to the stagflation. Brezhnev has been criticized since his death for doing too little to improve the economic situation in the country. Throughout his rule, about 18 years, no major reforms were initiated and very few proposed reforms were were taken and they were incredibly modest or were opposed by much of the Soviet leadership. The reform-minded chairman of the Council of Ministers, Alexei Koixin, introduced two modest reforms in the 1970s after the failure of his more radical 1965 reform and attempted to reverse the trend of declining growth. By the 1970s, Brezhnev had consolidated enough power to stop any radical reform-minded attempts by anyone. After Brezhnev died in November 1982, Yuri Andropov succeeded him as Soviet leader. Brezhnev's legacy was a Soviet Union that was much less dynamic than it had been when he got to power in 1964. During Andropov's short rule, very modest reforms were introduced – He died a little more than a year later in February 1984. Konstantin Chernenko, his successor, continued much of Andropov's policies. The economic problems that began under Brezhnev persisted into these two short rulers' terms, and scholars today still debate whether the reforms that these guys introduced were poor or made the Soviet Union worse. It didn't certainly make it any better. This era of stagflation ended with Gorbachev's rise to power, during which political and social life was democratized. Now use that word carefully, it's a small d for democratized. Even though the economy was still stagnating, under Gorbachev's leadership, the Communist Party began efforts to accelerate development and in 1985 started a policy of massive injections of finance into heavy industries. When these failed, the Communist Party restructured, i.e. perestroika, the Soviet economy and government by introducing something like a quasi-capitalist and quasi-democratic reform. These were intended to re-energize the Soviet Union, but ultimately led to its dissolution in 1991. Then, in the 1970s, there was the shock of the oil crisis. Economic growth in the rest of the world plummeted, but the Soviet hard currency earnings grew as a result of oil exports. Following the crisis, overall economic activity decreased markedly in the Soviet Union, the Western Bloc and Japan, but in the Soviet Union, it was way much worse than elsewhere. So in short, economic stagflation was caused primarily due to internal mismanagement of the economy. Mikhail Gorbachev, Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev, was born on the 2nd of March 1931. He served as the 8th and the last leader of the Soviet Union. He was the General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union from 1985 until 1991. He was also the country's head of state from 1988 until 1991, serving as the Chairman of the of the Supreme Soviet from 1988 to 1989, Chairman of the Supreme Soviet from 1989 to 1990, and President of the Soviet Union from 1990 to 1991. Ideolog- ideologically, Gorbachev, or as he was fondly known as Gobi, initially adhered to Marxism and Leninism, although he had moved towards social democracy by the early 1990s. Gorbachev became leader in 1985 following Jenenko's death. His leadership style differed from that of his predecessors. He would stop to talk to civilians on the street, forbade the display of his own portrait at the 1985 Red Square holiday celebrations, and encouraged frank and open discussions at Politburo meetings. Gorbachev recurrently employed the term perestroika, first used publicly in March 1984. He saw perestroika as encompassing a complex series of reforms to restructure society and the economy. He was worried by the country's low productivity, poor work ethic, and inferior quality goods. Like several economists, he feared this would lead to the country becoming a second-rate power. The first stage of Gorbachev's perestroika was acceleration, a term he used regularly in his first two years of his leadership. The purpose of reform was to prop up the centrally planned economy, not to transition to market socialism. Gorbachev's perestroika also entailed attempts to move away from technocratic management of the economy by increasingly involving the labour force in industrial production. He was of the view that, once freed from the strong control of central planners, state-owned enterprises would act as market agents. In the second year of his leadership, Gorby began speaking of glasnost, or openness. This meant greater openness and candour in government affairs, for and interplay at different and sometimes conflicting views of political debates. It's not to say that Gorbachev was universally liked or that his reforms were welcome. Some in the party thought Gorbachev was not going far enough in his reforms. A prominent critic there was Boris Yeltsin, while others thought he was going way too far. One of the first challenges in his leadership of the Soviet Union was the Chernobyl disaster. This was a nuclear accident that occurred on Saturday the 26th of April 1986 at the number 4 reactor in the Chernobyl nuclear power plant near the city of Pripyat in north of Ukraine, the northern Ukraine SSR that is. It is considered the worst nuclear disaster in history, both in terms of cost and casualties, and is one of only two nuclear energy accidents rated at what is considered a 7 i.e. the maximum severity, on the international nuclear event scale. The other was a 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan. The impact of this disaster was felt as close by as Belarus and as far away as Scotland. An area originally extending 30 kilometres in all directions from the plant is officially called the Zone of Alienation. The area has largely reverted to forest, and has been overrun by wildlife because of a lack of competition with humans for space and resources. By 2011, the country of Ukraine had started letting tourists in, although at that time people felt no one could live there for another several centuries, but by 2016 even locals had started to move in. Of course, wildlife had moved in way before the humans. If you get a chance, you should check out some photos. It is truly amazing how quickly, once you take the humans out, nature comes right back. Anyhow, back to the USSR. In the Soviet Union, alcohol consumption had risen steadily between 1950 and 1985. By the 1980s, drunkenness was a major, major, major social problem, and Andropov had planned a major campaign to limit alcohol consumption. Encouraged by his wife, Gorbachev, who believed the campaign would improve health and work efficiency, oversaw its implementation. Alcohol production was reduced by around 40%. The legal drinking age rose from 18 to 21, alcohol prices were increased, stores were banned from selling it before 2pm, and tougher penalties were introduced for workplace or public drunkenness and home production of alcohol. The Afghan war was a conflict where insurgent groups, known collectively as the Mujahideen, as well as the smaller Maoist groups, fought a nine-year guerrilla war against the Soviet army and the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan throughout the 1980s, mostly in the Afghan countryside. This Mujahideen were pretty much backed by the United States, Pakistan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, China and the United Kingdom. The conflict was a theatre in the Cold War. Between 560,000 and 2 million Afghans were killed and millions more fled the country as refugees, mostly to Pakistan and Iran. Between 6.5% and 11% of Afghanistan's population is estimated to have perished in the conflict. Lives lost and the financial cost of the war was immense. The USSR ultimately left Afghanistan in 1989. The Russian word «demokratizia» was a slogan introduced by Gorbachev in January of 1987. It called for the infusion of, in inverted commas, «democratic» elements into the Soviet Union's single-party government. Gorbachev's «demokratia» meant the introduction of multi-candidate, though not multi-party, elections for local Communist Party officials and the Soviets. In this way, he hoped to rejuvenate the party with progressive personnel who would carry out his institutional and policy reforms. The CPSU would retain sole custody of the ballot box. By the time of the 28th Party Congress in July 1990, it was clear that Gorbachev's reforms came with sweeping unintended consequences as nationalities of the constituent republics of the Soviet Union pulled harder than ever to break away from the Union and ultimately dismantle the Communist Party itself. Another unintended consequence of this reform, along with Glasnost, was a rampant rise of nationalism in all the Soviet republics, be it Russia, be it Ukraine, or Lithuania. Then there was a Cold War. Gorbachev tried to improve relations with the UK, France and West Germany, Like previous Soviet leaders, he was interested in pulling Western Europe away from the US sphere of influence. He called for greater pan-European cooperation. He publicly spoke of a common European home and of a Europe from the Atlantic to the Urals. In March 1987, Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher, i.e. Maggie, visited Gorbachev in Moscow. Despite their ideological differences, they liked one another. In April 1989, he visited London and he dined with Elizabeth II. In May 1987, Gorbachev again visited France and in November 1988, Mitterrand visited him back in Moscow. He also met with the Helmut Kohl of West Germany and Pope John Paul II in Rome. Gorbachev continued to pursue good relations with China to heal that Sino-Soviet split that had happened decades ago. In May 1989, he visited Beijing and there he met its leader, Deng Xiaoping. Deng shared Gorbachev's belief in economic reform but rejected calls for democratisation. Pro-democracy students had amassed in Tiananmen Square during Gorbachev's visit, but after he left, they were massacred by Chinese troops. Gorbachev did not condemn the massacre publicly, but it reinforced his commitment not to use violent force in dealing with pro-democracy protests within his own sphere of influence, i.e. the Eastern Bloc. In February of 1987, Gorbachev held a conference in Moscow titled For a World Without Nuclear Weapons for Mankind's Survival, which was attended by various international celebrities and of politicians. By publicly pushing for nuclear disarmament, Gorbachev sought to give the Soviet Union the moral high ground and weaken the West's self-perception of moral superiority. Aware that Reagan would not budge on SDI or Strategic Defense Initiative – Gorbachev focused on reducing intermediate-range nuclear forces, to which Reagan was receptive. In December 1987, Gorbachev visited Washington DC, where he and Reagan signed the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Another US-Soviet summit occurred in Moscow in May to June 1988, which Gorbachev expected to be largely symbolic. Again, he and Reagan criticised one of those countries, Reagan raising Soviet restrictions on religious freedom, Gorbachev highlighting poverty and racial discrimination in the US, but Gorbachev reiterated reiterated that they spoke on friendly terms. They reached an agreement on notifying each other before conducting the ballistic missile tests and made agreements on transportation, fishing and radio navigation. At the summit, Reagan told reporters that he no longer considered the Soviet Union an evil empire, and the duo revealed that they considered themselves friends. The third summit was held in New York City in December. Arriving there, Gorbachev gave a speech to the United Nations Assembly where he announced a unilateral reduction in the Soviet armed forces by 500,000. He also announced that 50,000 troops would be be withdrawn from Central and Eastern Europe. He then met with Reagan and then President-elect of the US, George H.W. Bush. In foreign policy, Gorbachev rejected the Brezhnev Doctrine. The idea that the Soviet Union had the right to intervene militarily in other Marxist-Leninist countries, if their governments were threatened. This directly had consequences for Europe. Revolutions in 1989 formed part of a revolutionary wave in the late 1980s and early 1990s that resulted in the end of communist rule in Central and Eastern Europe. The end of the period of the Cold War and the removal of the Iron Curtain between Eastern and Western Europe happened during these two years. These revolutions began in Poland in 1988, actually, with the Polish workers' mass strike movement on the 21st of April, that continued in East in Hungary, East Germany, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia and Romania, and then in Cambodia, dying out around the year 1993. Outside Afghanistan and Romania, though, there were mostly peaceful revolutions. In case you're interested, the Berlin Wall fell on the 8th of November 1989. In January 1990, Gorbachev privately agreed to permit East German reunification with the West, but rejected the idea that a unified Germany could retain West Germany's NATO membership. In May 1990, he visited the US for talks with Bush. There, he agreed that an independent Germany would have the right to choose its international alliances. He later revealed that he had agreed to do so because US Secretary of State, who was James Baker at the time, promised that NATO troops would not be posted to Eastern Germany and that the military alliance would not expand into Europe or Eastern Europe. Privately, though, Bush ignored Baker's assurances and later pushed for NATO expansion into Eastern Europe. And if you look at it today in 2021, NATO is at the border of Russia. In August 1990, Saddam Hussein's Iraq invaded Kuwait. Gorbachev endorsed the US condemnation of it. In November, the Soviets endorsed a UN resolution permitting force to be used in expelling the Iraqi army from Kuwait. Gorbachev later called it a watershed in world politics. The first time the superpowers acted together in a regional crisis. However, when the US announced plans for a ground invasion, Gorbachev opposed it urging instead a peaceful solution. Throughout 1991, Gorbachev requested sizable loans from Western countries and Japan, hoping to keep the Soviet economy afloat and ensure the success of perestroika. Although the Soviet Union had been excluded from the G7, Gorbachev secured an invitation to its London summit in July 1991. There, he continued to call for financial assistance. Mitterrand and Cole backed him, while Thatcher, who was not in office at the time, John Major was the Prime Minister, also urged Western leaders to agree. Most G7 members were reluctant, instead offering technical assistance in proposing the Soviets receive special associate status rather than full membership of the World Bank or International Monetary Fund. Gorbachev was left frustrated that the US would spend $100 billion on the Gulf War but not offer his country loans. Other countries were rather more forthcoming. West Germany had given the Soviets Deutschmark 60 billion by mid-1991. Later that month, Bush visited Moscow, where he and Gorbachev signed the START-1 treaty, a bilateral agreement on the reduction and limitation of strategic arms after 10 years of negotiation. No sooner had the US president left Moscow, we came across the August coup. In August, Gorbachev and his family holidayed at the dacha in the Crimea. Two weeks into his holiday, a group of senior Communist Party figures, known as the Gang of Eight, called themselves the State Committee on the State of Emergency, launched a coup d'etat to seize control of the USSR. The phone lines to his dacha were cut and a group arrived, including Bolden, Shanin, Balanikov and General Varunayev, informing him of the takeover. The coup leaders demanded that Gorbachev formally declare a state of emergency in the country, but he refused. Gorbachev and his family were kept under house arrest at their dacha. The coup plotters publicly announced that Gorbachev was ill and thus Vice President Yanovev would take charge of the country. Yeltsin, who was by now President of the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic, went inside the Moscow White House, tens of thousands of protesters amassed outside it, to prevent troops storming the building to arrest him, while Gorbachev was fearing that the coup plotters would order to kill him, so had his guard barricade his dacha. However, the coup leaders realised that they lacked sufficient support and ended their efforts. On the 21st of August, just two days later, all of them arrived at Gorbachev's dacha to inform him that they were going to do so, i.e. stop the coup. That evening, Gorbachev returned to Moscow where he thanked Yeltsin and the protesters for helping to undermine the coup. However, by this point, power had moved in technical terms from Gorbachev to Yeltsin because the images of Yeltsin standing on a top of a tank shouting and protesting against the takeover was visual leadership, whereas Gorbachev was stuck in house arrest in his dacha. Gorbachev attended a session of the Russian Supreme Soviet on the 23rd of August, where Yeltsin aggressively criticised him for having appointed and promoted many of the coup members to start with. Yeltsin then announced the suspension of the activities of the Russian Communist Party. The Soviet Union collapsed with dramatic speed in the last quarter of 1991. Ukraine was the first of 10 republics to secede from the Union between August and December, largely out of fear of another coup. By the end of September, Gorbachev no longer had the ability to influence events outside of Moscow. He was challenged even there by Yeltsin, who had begun taking over what remained of the Soviet government, including the Kremlin. In September 1991, the United Nations General Assembly admitted Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania to the UN as independent countries. The final round of the USSR's collapse started on the first December 1991. That day, a Ukrainian referendum resulted in 91% of the voters voting to affirm the independence of the country from the Soviet Union and to formally secede from the Union. This was a major blow because Ukraine, outside of Russia, was the largest single other powerful republic. Then the leaders of the three Slavic republics, Russia, Ukraine and Belarus, agreed to discuss possible alternatives to the Union. On the 8th of December, the leaders of Russia, Ukraine and Belarus met in Western Belarus and signed the Bel Accords, Records, which proclaimed the Soviet Union had ceased to exist and announced the formation of the Commonwealth of Independent States, or the CIS, as a looser association to take its place. They also invited other republics to join the CIS. Gorbachev called it an unconstitutional coup. However, by this time there was no longer any reasonable doubt that, as the preamble for the Accords put it, the USSR, as a subject of international law and a geopolitical reality, is ceasing to exist. On the 21st of December 1991, representatives of 11 of the 12 remaining republics, all except for Georgia, signed the alma ata Protocol, which confirmed the dissolution of the Union and formally established the CIS. They also accepted Gorbachev's resignation. Even at this moment, Gorbachev had not made any formal plans to leave the scene yet. However, with many republics now agreeing that the Soviet Union no longer existed, Gorbachev ultimately bowed to the inevitable. In a nationally televised speech on the evening of the 25th of December 1991, Gorbachev resigned as president of the USSR, or as he put it, I hereby discontinue my activities at the post of the President of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. He declared the office extinct, and all its powers, such as control of the nuclear arsenal, were ceded to Yeltsin. A week earlier, Gorbachev had met with Yeltsin and accepted this ultimate outcome. On the same day, the Supreme Soviet of the Russian SFSR adopted a statute to change Russia's legal name from the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic to Russian Federation, showing that it was now a fully sovereign state. On the 26th of December, the Soviet of the Republics, the upper chamber of the Union's Supreme Soviet, voted the Soviet Union out of existence. The Soviet ambassador to the UN delivered a letter signed by Russian President Yeltsin to the UN Secretary General dated the 24th of December 1991 informing him that by virtue of the Alma-Ata protocol, Russia was the successor state to the USSR. After being circulated among other UN member states with no objection raised, the statement was declared and accepted on the last day of the year, December 31st, 1991. The rest of the 1990s saw instability in the Balkans, the rise of US hegemony leading to multiple wars, the rapid rise of China, the decline of Japan, Expanded European Union, liberalisation of the Indian economy, collapse of apartheid in South Africa and the rise of anti-Americanism in the Islamic world all had consequences here today in 2021 and that is 30 years after the August 1991 coup. The former Soviet republics and Eastern Bloc countries rose against authoritarian rule in a frenzy of nationalism. On a personal note, I, rem- I remember seeing a lot of these events unfold on TV while living in England. The impact of this sudden near-bloodless self-implosion of a massive country that was also a superpower with nuclear weapons had multiple impacts to world politics in the immediate aftermath as well as today. today. Exactly 30 years later. It was this event that actually got me interested in world politics, geopolitics, and history. This has been an Alternative History Podcast. Please like, subscribe, and follow on your podcast platform of choice. If you are on Apple's platform, please leave a comment. Thank you so much.